Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault in the news cycle to people that make it and occasionally ourselves, often more frequently than weekly, and I'm stammering. I'm also Camille Foster. I do various things at a place called Freethink, and I am delighted to be here joining you, coming to you from a secret compound someplace deep in the heart of Virginia where I am heavily armed well-stocked with food and supplies and have all of the toilet paper available at the local stores. If you want it, you need to come and get it from me. I will charge you a lot. All right, Terry Nichols. <laughs> joining me today. <laughs> joining me today, Matt Welch, editor at large, Reason Magazine. Very, very good friend, Michael Moynihan, also of Vice News. Neither of those men have any toilet paper. I may give them some if I am so inclined. Besides not having toilet paper, gentlemen, how the hell are you? Matt, how are you? I mean, you have a B, you have a B day, though. A B day? Oh, my God. It's a friend. Fr- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Been in America. You've been in America. No, it's like it was a birthday. And I started to like. Yeah. Oh, oh, my oh. God. I've lost B-day. track of time. It's July. It's all I was possible. trying to not sound too French, like a person on NPR, like saying Guatemala or something. You got one of <laughs> them bidets. Goes right at the little, <laughs> the, the, the hooch hole right so, there. So how are you, Matt? <laughs> I'm, I will take it and say I'm fine. Yeah. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm getting used to it. I'm good. Like we started late enough. Uh, Camille was late enough to, uh, to show <laughs> yeah. up here so that. My five-year-old uh, couldn't come down and do her um, practiced uh, uh, Bernie Sanders is awesome <laughs> line. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Which you're going to have her do She that. heard from last time was a pretty big hit. So she was re- ready to go. Um, and that was, that was a uh, to be clear, a Patreon, uh, the last Patreon episode um, that my daughter um, – Levia bombed the recording the, with a shout about Bernie Sanders. So. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Zoom, zoom bombed. Um, yeah, no. Yeah, she's zoom bombed. All, all fine here, except for everyone's losing their uh, minds. And uh, we just kind of work in shifts. If we can get like two out of the four members of the household not entirely crazy and scratching at each other's eyeballs, then like it's a win. And so uh, it's kind of at a at a push right now. Yeah, I mean – I think the most annoying thing is that I just I want to order I want to order stuff, and it's just it's just not coming. Um, I I think I mentioned this. This is like the dumbest thing I've. I ordered a yoga mat. <laughs> from, Don't from ask. Amazon? It's yeah. It's part it, yeah. It's part of a project uh, that I'm doing. Um, it's supposed to come tomorrow, um, but I ordered it three weeks ago, um, and uh, I want to like start complaining. Like I you know look the prime is two days. You, you promised. There was no stipulation in my prime sign up about a pandemic, but I want to get, I, I want to like get big TVs and all stuff, but I don't have any money and, uh, and nothing's working. Um, but I but, um, my ex has been, been very funny about this because she's just buying stuff from other things provided it's not Amazon. It comes on time. That's what, that's what she's discovered. Just don't order things from Amazon. It's right like now. the whole foods Trader Joe's conundrum. Like, yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Big lines it's there. The, it's the, yeah. If you need something on online, it's like C-Town. I got a book today. 
It's still it's wrapped up like a present. I haven't even opened it yet. Uh oh. I don't remember what it. I don't remember See, what it is. We can watch can this. We're all zooming here. You know, this is an audio <laughs> yeah. product. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's an audio product. But Camille can figure out what we're going to talk about first, and I'll open this present. I'm just worried about the anthrax oh. just oh, like bubbling up oh, into your that. face. Oh yeah, it's the Max Eastman. Yeah, look at that with the slip. Oh, look at that. It's got a dust jacket on it too. I got this for like two bucks. 1934, Alfred Alfred A. Knopf, uh, Artists in Uniform. A study of literature and bureaucratism by uh, Max Eastman, who was a, a communist and he was the editor of the day, um, the New Masses, I believe, which was the yeah. communist uh, magazine um, and wrote for the Daily Worker. And not long after this uh, shifted uh, to the other side. And uh, this is when he was talking about um, how everybody in the Soviet sphere, which he was a kind of a part of, well, he was definitely a part of, wanted um, you to write for the benefit of the party and not for the sake of literature. And this is his uh, treatise on that. Artist in uniform. Still a lefty at the time, but I don't know. I don't remember seeing that. I must have been drunk when I bought that. Did you ever do that? Did you ever drunk buy things on the internet? I never drunk buy 1934 tomes about the uses of <laughs> ideology and art. I, I don't know. It just doesn't occur to me. Why? <laughs> it's a moral failing. <laughs> That's a moral like, failing. I, what I do is like I like I did this last night. I buying those boys' I own records. Actually, just <laughs> sit down and watch one of those Netflix World War II documentaries, and I'm good. Like I don't need to. Oh, what did you watch? Which oh, one? just the stupid uh, you know World at War in color um, thing. Oh, it's the same yeah, old yeah. documentaries that we grew up on, except that, that now it's in color. And it's like, oh wow, Hitler. Wow, he's he's, oh, he's yeah, like yeah. brownish red now. Um, that's yeah, different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I made a joke when I was reconstructing the podcast um, uh, that we post we posted on Patreon, because uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you'll know that Camille forgot to press record. And I made a joke when posting it that I, I did it with uh, Peter Jackson-like precision. Uh, <laughs> I've made this recommendation a million times, but if it, if it passed you by, uh, you're at home and you're doing... Uh, what the British would say, uh, you're doing fuck all. You might as well watch um, uh, They Will Not Grow Old, the incredible documentary that Peter Jackson uh, did came out last year, the World War One documentary, which is, oh, man, it's so crazy, but you got to stick around. The best part about that doc is the doc after it. The doc about the doc, about how they made it and, you know, corrected all the frame rates and all the old footage and, you know, did lip reading to get what the the soldiers were saying and colorized it and it's just a, a crazy, crazy feat. And he's like clearly an insane person too. They show him like in the studio, like with no like no shoes he's on. Like a weird like hobbit he's, and he's like fat. Yeah, he is a weird yeah. hobbit. Yeah, he's a fat little hobbit. Um I but didn't he, he made those Hobbit movies. He didn't sure he? did. Uh, Lord okay. of the Rings and the Hobbit movies. Uh the latter of which I defend, I'm the only person who will. Uh, that I this all reminds me that Vince Scully, the great uh the best ever uh, baseball oh, announcer, yeah. um about a week, ten days ago. And he's been retired for a few years. He's, the dude's in his 90s. He's really old, uh, but just like the best. Do- Dodgers announcer, Dodgers right? announcer for, for a thousand years. But he used to like announce Super Bowls and mm. like, you know, bowling and stuff like that. He just, we would do everything for a while. But like ultimately he was the Dodgers announcer from the time they were in Brooklyn, but, uh, but associated with L.A. Anyways, he came out when the baseball season had been canceled and people were down in the dumps and coronavirus and whatever. And he comes out and does a video and says, you know, pleasant good evening uh, to you, wherever you may be, like his usual wind up. And it was so great because it's Vinny and you haven't heard from him very much the last couple of years. And um, and it's like a two minute video. And in the middle of it, he's like giving us a pep talk. And it's like, you know, uh, 
we've been down some roads before and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not doing his accent uh, uh, good at all. And I, I wouldn't even try. Um, but he's old enough <laughs> that he's still mad. You could tell. He's like, and when mm. the Japanese bombed us at Pearl Harbor, like he, he clenches mm. up. He gets he did. Yeah. He hasn't forgotten. He's still yeah. pissed at the Japanese for bombing Pearl Harbor. I love it. was kind of a bad of thing it. to do. It was kind of a dick it move. It was a super dick move. <laughs> and I was watching the Japanese like Guadalcanal like episode last night on World War II. I was like, God, they're little shorts. Screw them. Yeah. Uh no, it was, yeah. really, it was really good. Matt's going to come out of this COVID thing like a like a World War II historian or a Nazi. I'm not sure which one is going to could be, could be take first. Those are not mutually exclusive. Yeah. They're, no, they're not. <laughs> you could be the David Irving of, of this podcast. Yeah. Um, well, we should talk a little bit about the, the things that are going on in the world. And there there are a lot of them. Uh, obviously, COVID still a huge friggin deal considering we're all still locked in our homes and you're all still downloading this and listening to us in a similar circumstance. Um, so unless, unless you're Danish or Austrian, uh, <laughs> they seem to be winding things uh, down. The, the, they're, they're like letting things open up next week a little bit. So we do have listeners in, in, in Denmark and Austria, so well, they're going to be having a little more of a normal Iceland normal life. It's coming online. Iceland, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we'll, we'll see. Uh, we, we do hear this is supposed to be peak week um, in a number of places, including New York City. Um, this is still very early in the week. We're recording this on a Tuesday evening. Um, so we don't really know um, how things will shape up. But certainly the the numbers um, in terms of the total cases are still going up, although the, the numbers of new cases per day seems to be leveling off a bit. Um, and the death count, of course, keeps going up. I, I, I find the the fascination with tallying up every New Day's ex- additional number of dead and infected just a, a bit grating. So I'm not going to do any of that here. Plus, it's not terribly useful for you if it's three no. or four days later. Um, so we don't do that. Three or four um, days later? Some of, three or four days. How, much, do you how much time are you going to edit this? No, no I'm just saying people this might be listening to this three or four <laughs> no, days not. later. No, they might listen right to away. it a month. They might listen to it a not month later. Straight up. It's, not a they chance. They absolutely do today. No, they don't. Just today, I tweeted. Literally, someone just texted me and said, we all listen to it the next day. <laughs> Tell me about your favorite episodes. And they were running the episodes down. And many people indicated that they listened to these multiple times and that they dig through the archives because it's all so worthwhile and yeah. wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it filled me with joy to know that you we know, were giving you know, people you know, some of them. Some of them are mentally ill, too. Well, that's this is totally... This is, this is very true. <laughs> we love them most of all. <laughs> this, this is why um, you should... You have to turn the video on, Matt. I get to, to see a spit take. A real, a real honest spit take. Um, but there's a lot of stuff going on. We've, we've got um, high holidays um, coming up for the, uh, for the, for the chosen people. Um, and there are some uh, Hasidic weddings apparently taking place in Williamsburg, which Dude, I just sent you a picture to report on. You did. And speaking of sending pictures and probably where we should start <laughs> is Mr. Mr. Michael Moynihan's star turn. We all know Mr. Hollywood Michael Moynihan is frequently on television and doing various important things and hanging out with important people. Uh, but what we didn't know is that he's a narc mm. who Such captures narc. videos mm. and photos of people mm. who are betraying their mm. fellow Americans the same as those who betrayed us to the Germans and informed yes. the same as the 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 Tokyo, Tokyo Rose. Rose. Yeah, yeah. 
They're really bad. Um, I kind of so, like to think of myself as the Sammy the Bull Gravano <laughs> of Williamsburg. I had a good run, so, and then, I, then everyone pissed me off, and I flipped on them. So to give folks a little context, um, as, as, you very well, very, as you very well know, Governor Cuomo, not to be confused yeah. with his brother, who is a CNN anchor, who claims to have had hallucinations related to his battle with uh, COVID which uh, in those during those where he saw Mario he saw, Cuomo, right? He saw and his father his sitting at the foot of his bed <laughs> and chipped his tooth because he was chattering so hard. Now, granted, no, I don't. I'm not. I wouldn't laugh real. at the man suffering. I, no, but he I am clearly had COVID. You know, I am skeptical of that claim. Yeah, but I don't no, know totally. But I don't know. I'm not calling him a liar. I'm just. I've like, seen Mario Cuomo in a couple of <laughs> after a couple of nights out. <laughs> And it was recently, <laughs> but, but in this, but in this particular case, this wasn't about hallucinations. Moynihan, you you'd taken video, you'd captured video yeah. of people out on a week beautiful Ve- weekend weekend, weekend yeah. day, beautiful day. Saturday or Sunday, and you posted them to Twitter, showing all these people who were not social distancing mm-hmm. necessarily, um, who were hanging out and enjoying a beautiful day in Domino Park mm-hmm. in Williamsburg, and somehow or another, stills from your video <laughs> made it into. Governor Cuomo's press conference. Start what snitching. the hell is going on? Did you send these in? Did <laughs> no. you submit these? Did it, because no. I have seen calls from various yeah. government officials for you to snitch on your neighbor. Did Emmanuel yeah. put Are you, you up to this, Michael? That's my question. Yeah, no, Emmanuel would have would have gotten like a wide shot and had like two cameras, cut it together really nice. Yeah, my uh, my uh, snitches get uh, in a press conference. Apparently, <laughs> no. I mean, I was walking through. Domino Park, which nobody asked the question, why were you there? No one asked that question, by the way. Of the thousands and thousands of people who retweeted, no one was like, but weren't the, isn't the person who joked? Yeah, yeah, I was there too. Um, no, I was actually walking through on a booze run. Um, I was with my daughter, and it was a beautiful afternoon. And we were talking about how, you know, no one could go outside. And we went through, cut through Domino Park, and my daughter was like, geez. There's a lot of people here. It's kind of surprising. Like dog park was full. All the lawns were full. Um, and I, I, there, I, there are two tweets. He didn't use the second one, which was a better one. Uh, it was a picture of like a huge group of people in a circle uh, sitting on the grass in front of a sign that says, don't sit on the grass. <laughs> it's like literally nobody, nothing was, was legal. Any, I mean, yeah. you, look, the second you can All buy, bets are off. Get, yeah, you can get takeaway <laughs> drinks from the bar now. in Brooklyn. Totally. Yeah. yeah. It's like, <laughs> screw it. We're just doing what we want. So I tweeted that, um, and not in a narc way, in like a joking way. I'm like, oh God, look, it's packed. It's like just packed. And then it got um, retweeted a million times. Um, but the funny thing is, I haven't mentioned this, is a couple, I took a couple of screenshots of this. It's hard because there was a lot of retweets. Um, I had to get um, a few of these I noticed. It was the injection of race into my, into yes. my tweet. A yes, lot. I saw that. The, the woman who tweeted, Sorry. these white people are going to kill us all. Yeah, what? yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> good God. Yeah, it was apparently the grand wizards of the hipsters of uh, Williamsburg that were getting together in the park. But no, it was, there were a couple, there were multiple of like, this is what these white people do and these white people are going to hurt. And I think that when you normalize uh, this and say, no, 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 only a certain very, very narrow group of people can get be racist, not narrow, but... You know, only white people can be racist, basically. Um, and we can just talk, you know, pejoratively about white people, all the white people. And then you see it lobbed out in every situation. And then right afterwards, um, and this is the great transition, Camille, 
is that we started talking about yesterday and today, I guess, this uh, focus on race in a broader sense that um, that minority communities are uh, the hardest hit in all of this, uh, apparently. This not is not I've minority been re- communities, Michael Moynihan. Anyone who uh, suggests that is, is that dodging wrong? the issue. It's oh, that African was, Americans. It's oh, that was what's people. her name? The, the fake historian? What's her name? <laughs> <laughs> Nicole uh, Hannah-Jones. Yeah, yeah, she's brilliant. Um, uh, she, <laughs> um, yeah, she was reading about this, and, and it's funny because what they're inviting is for you to talk about groups, right? White people, they're like this, right? They're all there, all these white people. There's a bunch of tweets like this of, on, on my video. Wh- white people, they're doing this, these Williamsburg rich white people. And then I took a picture and sent it to you guys. I was jogging uh, home tonight, and I jogged by about 68,000 Hasidic people <laughs> that were jammed into, it was like a stunt or something. It was like they were trying to win a Guinness Book of World, like most Hasidic people in the smallest square. During a plague. Yeah. <laughs> during a plague. Yeah. Most Hasidic people in a two-mile radius during a plague goes to... <laughs> so... <laughs> so this is... Uh, I take a picture of that and send it to you guys. Like, look at this is crazy. I, I, by the way, I, I'm not going to narc twice. I didn't post that when you might have noticed. Um, you will. No, 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 I won't. And so, but the other day I was, wa- I was running through the projects and um, I wasn't jogging. Um, I just was walking. Scary. I started running. Uh, I was terrified. What part, yeah. what part of town were you in? Uh, the scary one. Uh, <laughs> the Marcy projects. Um, okay. And, and so I am in the projects and uh, walking through there and, and, uh, there was not social distancing going on there. So we can talk about the white people and talk about the Hasids and the projects, you know, this projects in particular, not a lot of white people around and not a lot of social distancing either. And you can talk about that when you're Nicole Hannah Jones and say, don't say minorities, it's African-Americans. They're being afflicted by this. So can we also say that the social distancing is, is a thing that nobody's doing. And I saw it in, Williamsburg, I saw it in, you know, the Hasidic community, the hipster community, the, uh, the uh, bougie white community, and the black community down the street. And it's like, I, it's, it's funny, because when you talk about this, once I go there, it's, it's like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't say that. Because not all people, it's like, well, yeah, but I just got a series of tweets from people saying, these white people are going to kill us. <laughs> just like, it's, it was only a matter of time, because I think we jumped the gun and said, this might be the death knell for wokeness. And it's like, well, let's, the wokeness will be injected into the actual debate. Just give it time. And, uh, and it has been. So. I just want to point out that my neighborhood, which is, uh, has on those little heat maps in New York that we're looking at now of who has been overly afflicted, and Bill de Blasio is trying to make a specific point about race and poverty in a lot of his uh, press briefings. Um, my neighborhood, uh, Carroll Gardens, which is old Italians and then younger, um, uh, I guess, rich people uh, coming in, uh, gentrifiers coming in, uh, hasn't been very afflicted, and, uh, and which is surprising to me because the old Italians, like Italy was hit really hard. And these people, many, like the guy who runs the pizzeria in the building that we're in, he's from Sicily. So like I was, you know, you just would think that there'd be some uh, family connections, um, but people are practicing social social distancing. Um, the problem is that that's not enough for Italians. As loud as they talk, 
Moynihan, mm. uh, being a half Italian, you'll understand this. Like, um, <laughs> we had our friend Ben Walker was uh, social distancing on our patio uh, the other day, and like, <laughs> and people could walk by the sidewalk, and it's an Italian dude just sort of talking with, a, and he didn't have his mask on, and he's like, "Yes, yeah, so like, like spraying, like six feet is not, yeah. no, sixty feet wouldn't contain all the spray that comes out, and everyone just instinctively lunges for their painter yeah. mask. Like this, get the Bane mask on to to make it go away. Um, so the human shamus <laughs> splashing you at SeaWorld with their spittle. But um, but it's amazing. The last two days, it seems like this uh, critique. I mean, uh, Moynihan even sort of hinted at it. The uh, the classic old, even apocryphal, perhaps uh, fake New York Times. I think it was headline. Uh, you know, world ends tomorrow. Uh, women minorities hardest hit. Uh, it was yeah, a, yeah, a, it's a fan, satirical yeah. look at, I mentioned that the at other day. How, yeah. I went to, I just went before we started uh, 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 recording this. I went to look for the original of that joke because it's been with us uh, for 20 years. I couldn't find it. And I found a lot of like references to me referencing it and to like Tim Cavanaugh referencing it. I'm like, did yeah. we invent this? No, I, like this yeah. is something that happened 20 years <laughs> That's ago. That's when you realize that you came up with Oh this my joke. God, I was doing racist <laughs> jokes. Uh, no, but like, but like it's no longer a joke. That's the thing. Like a- actually when you do a search on it, you find a bunch of headlines from literally last week that aren't trying to be satirical in any way, shape or form. It's like, oh, there's so many job losses, women, minorities, hard to see it. Camille, yeah, this is, I've been waiting to talk to you about this because I see this happening when you just said you just said that that there's a something kind of grim about the what you perceive and I know what you're talking about as excitement in some way or the other kind of scoreboarding of of deaths. I saw a bit of that when um, excitement is totally the wrong word, but I, I mean, I saw a bit of that when people were like, oh, wow, I can push my own my my politics and the only thing that i talk about which is you know the issue of race in these cases into mm-hmm. this issue which has dominated everything it's been taking all the oxygen out of the room i haven't been able to talk about this thing which i'm 24 hours a day on twitter and the rest of it here's my opportunity to inject it into this i'm presuming that you're reacting negatively to this um, well, that is an interesting assumption, uh, Michael Moynihan. Um, <laughs> well, I had a little tip off. I didn't yeah, tell me and, a little. And, yeah. and I don't know. And I don't know if it's unfair to say that there isn't a bit of enthusiasm. There is, there's very much a bit of end zone dancing that seems to be going on here. You know, they're, they're very you mean like in an, I told you it. so way. Ab- absolutely. No doubt about it. The, the very first, the very first, um, tweet in Nicole Hannah Jones's long-ish thread on COVID-19 and African-Americans is uh, when COVID-19 first hit America hard last month, the narrative was that this was the great equalizer, that in such a divided nation, our shared humanity meant we would be equal in our suffering. But those of us who understand racial caste in America knew this could never be true. How, How could our shared humanity make us equal in suffering? That doesn't make uh, sense. I, su- I suppose in the sense that we are all similarly vulnerable to this particular malady. That that's probably what oh, she was going oh, she, for. Okay, so she means humanity in a broad. I thought she meant yeah. in a sort of yeah, in, in a different. I think sense. I think that's what yeah. she means. Yes, it is a little bit confusingly worded. Um, but the rest of this thread is first uh, a litany of charges based on newly released data in some cases and some early reporting that's a bit speculative. Um, mostly asserting that blacks are 
profoundly overrepresented in both the cases of infection COVID-19, but also with respect to deaths, they're much more likely to die based on the numbers that we've seen coming out of certain places like Chicago, um, Wisconsin. Uh, New York uh, has not been releasing uh, racially coded data um, for the people who are being tested for COVID. And the CDC hasn't been doing that either, but both have recently committed to this. Both today, Dr. Fauci, um, during a press conference at the White House, spoke to this issue and said that it was a a grave shame uh, and that the disease, the virus, was actually exposing some very important uh, and deep and disturbing disparities in our healthcare system. And Donald Trump said that he was distressed by this and that this was something they were going to try to figure out. But the basic gist of this is that Black people are suffering, and it's predictable because in America, Black people always suffer the worst. I think the the words Nicole Hannah-Jones used was that no one in America suffers more than poor Black people and Indigenous poor people. This is going to be a little long, so maybe I should start by just stating the bottom line up front. When you invoke race in a context like this, are you unfurling some deep historical truth a mystery that's been hidden from our knowledge and understanding for generations? Or are you exposing some sort of unspoken of distressing societal defect? Or are you perhaps muddling things? And it's certainly possible that it's some combination of those things. Um, But I'd suggest that you probably have to place the emphasis somewhere. And in the context of this pandemic, And I would say of anything related to biology or medicine, health and well-being generally, that you're generally muddling things as opposed to making them clearer. You are not improving our resolution. You're not enhancing our ability to have conversations about this issue. You're not improving our ability to respond to the issue. Okay, now that that's done. I have two categories of concern with this line of argument and reasoning and and honestly, the disproportionate focus on racial disparities in the context of this particular virus, but in healthcare stuff more broadly. Um, first and foremost, just from a human standpoint, if you are unfortunate enough to get this virus and doubly unfortunate in that you are one of the small percentage of people who contract the virus and then find yourselves in the hospital um, dying alone, a horrible death from a disease that we do not quite understand and it has completely shut down our society. That is an individual sort of suffering and a familial suffering that is pretty profound. And it's no less significant if you happen to be a white person or a Jewish person or an Asian person who happens to, to catch this thing and can't have your family stay with you in the hospital. So that's the first thing. Um, The second thing, though, is the the notion that paying special attention to disparities in healthcare with respect to race, I I think there's a general sense that this is like a noble thing to do, that that it's appropriate for us to be particularly concerned about the suffering heaped on a community. Um, But I think that gives far too much credence to the notion of race broadly which is uh, an imaginary construct. It's pretend. Um, It doesn't have a biological basis. Um, So certainly in the case of healthcare, anytime race is made to play 
too profound a role, I, I always get particularly nervous. There have been plenty of circumstances in this country where medicine uh, sort of racially coded in some sort of way with bizarre results. There's a book called Race in a Bottle that folks might want to take a look at, uh, which documents the situation with Bidol, and I won't unpack all of that now. But there's something absurd about suggesting that Black people, on account of their Blackness, are more vulnerable to COVID on account of the fact that their Blackness tends to correlate with other characteristics that actually make you more likely to not only get infected, but to die. So they are more likely to work in service jobs, according to Nicole Hannah-Jones, and they are more likely to suffer from conditions like hypertension, according to Nicole Hannah-Jones. And there are various other claims about um, the overall sort of nature of their health, about the likelihood of their using public transportation. I think the fact of the matter is that all of those very tangible things, those very real things that could put one at risk um, of capturing this disease, the fact that Black people tend to be overrepresented in those categories, um, I think is sort of being conflated in a way to make race seem like a risk factor for the disease when in fact it isn't. It isn't a risk factor. Um, and I, I think that there is, while well-intentioned, a, a, a drawback to conflating things in that way. I think we tend to have less serious conversations, certainly less actionable conversations, when the conversation becomes about phenotypic traits and the role that they play in epidemiology, when in fact they don't play a role in epidemiology. The, the racial category does not actually indicate whether or not you're likely to get this. I am not more likely to get this on account of my appearance. I might be more likely to get this if I tick a bunch of specific boxes. And it's those specific boxes, just like it's wash your hands, don't touch your face. These things actually put you at risk of contracting the disease. And yes, if you're riding mass transit during a pandemic and the city is instituting stupid policies that make there be less trains during the pandemic when people are still riding them, if there are fewer trains and there's more crowding, then everyone on that train is more susceptible. And they're not more susceptible on account of their blackness. I think there is a deep confusion here. Uh, and some people may say, well, Camille, it, there's nothing inappropriate about having tribal loyalties and being particularly concerned about the awful ways this malady is affecting people who look like you, who you, who you care about, members of your community. Um, I disagree. I think that there's something fundamentally wrong with reifying race broadly. And I think there's something more than unsavory about cherishing our connections to people on account of the way that they look, on account of how similar we are to one another on the basis of phenotype. That to me seems like something that we shouldn't do. Uh, and it seems to me that, you know, this, I'm, com I'm coming in for a landing here at a moment when the entire country has committed to a course, so to speak, um, some more willing than others, that requires us all to put our lives on hold to fight an invisible enemy that is killing thousands of Americans and thousands and thousands of people around the world. The entire world is paying attention. 
before anyone started talking about race, the president had effectively declared war on this enemy. And it's not clear when we'll get our lives back. And the cost of this battle for everyone are going to be tremendous. To reduce this, and I, I would say reduce, to reduce this to a conversation like the same stale, woke conversation that they sort of lost in the midst of all of this, I find that deeply distressing. And it's certainly less noble than the sort of stuff that people have been talking about before in terms of the way that they were sacrificing. And, you know, some of the stuff I've seen recently, just suggestions that doctors are perhaps not going to care for people as well on account of their blackness. Most of this stuff strikes me as completely absurd. And I could go on and on. I could talk about the people who say they won't wear masks outside because of the unique concern that. that they have, that they'll be targeted by police on account of their blackness because they're wearing masks outside. Is there a lot of that in terms of people who actually believe that? Or is there a lot of that in terms of seven people have written about it? I don't know how many people, people actually believe it, it yeah. but it's but it's on CNN um, and there are ostensibly bright people uh, who are college professors, et cetera, who assert these things and say that they won't wear masks because of this concern, because of the unique need that black people have to protect themselves. And if you're new to this podcast, you won't know this, but if you're not, you'll know that my estimation, like most of the assertions about black people being more likely to get shot on account of their blackness are kind of absurd. Um, and in the much the same way, injecting race into that conversation makes the conversation harder to have. Injecting race into the conversation about COVID isn't particularly valuable. Even, even Dr. Fauci, who raised this concern, had to say at the end, this is something that bothers me, but there's nothing we can do about it right now. <laughs> like, If we're going to win this particular battle, there is absolutely nothing about this that requires us to invoke race. No, there's nothing he can do about a higher prevalence of diabetes or obesity, um, which he did mention, actually. Um, and the problem um, with uh, race, injecting race into this, is just the problem with injecting race into anything these days, is that we have come to a place that maybe it's just me, and it could be just me, I'm, I'm open to the idea that it's just me, is that talking about it just gives me kind of the creeps and I don't want to talk about it. So for instance, I saw a lot of people talking around the fact that there was a wave we heard, much like the wave of 2016 after Trump was elected of hate crimes, a mm -hmm. wave of anti-Asian hatred that um, I just, I, I, I mean, I haven't seen this, a few examples that, that come up a, a couple of times. And then I saw another one the other day, on a, I think it was on a bus, maybe it was in New York City. And um, the, it was uh, Wes Yang, um, who, y you know him, he's a writer, and mm -hmm. he, he, he said something when somebody said, you know, whiteness and this blah, 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 this is the, the poison of white supremacy, et cetera. And Wes Yang, himself obviously an Asian, was like, no, I want to point out that the, all of these attacks are not by white people. And it's these, are, I mean, so even saying that, I was like, wow, Wes Yang is going there. Whereas I think that in the mid-1990s or something, when you were talking about, you know, I was in Crown Heights the other day and I was talking to some young people there and I was doing, for, for a piece that I was doing, and they were so completely clueless as to what Crown Heights meant to me 
from the 1990s, which was mm. you know, blacks and Jews, right? That was the that was so much so that Rabbi Michael Lerner wrote a book with Cornell West about it, I think called Blacks and Jews. And that was a big uh, issue of the time. And now there's an Asian thing, which, of course, um, happens, you know, in the 1990s in L.A., in particular, um, the killing of a of a, a young black girl in South Central L.A. by a Korean shop owner, which was Brutal. the real like, kind of shot in the back of the head. Shot in the back of the head. She was like, thought she was stealing orange juice and putting it in her bag or something, mm-hmm. which was, it turned out to be completely wrong, too. And even if it was right, it's insane the way she reacted. And she got basically a nothing sentence. But um, in that moment, um, it precipitated, I mean, that was really the the Gavrilo Princip moment. That was the shooting of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, where you end up with the LA riots. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what you can actually tie it back to that. Um, but then you get things like Ice Cube has that has that song Black Korea on America's Most Wanted, which is like the most racist song I've ever heard in my life, which is threatening to burn Korean stores to a crisp, quote unquote. So all of this, like that used to be out there. And we talk, and it's so funny that there's a bit of it here, a bit of it, Wes Yang talked about it. I don't know how much I've looked at it in, in any depth, but it's not being mentioned. And I just think that anybody who would talk about it um, is asking for trouble is that you don't want to talk about these things at all because I don't see this like a- epidemic like and, and I start this as a response to you saying that people say well we're treated differently by doctors they will it's it's it, it, we've gotten to a point and it's a good point to be at where obvious racism and manifestations of racism that are in the way that we think about them in you know you know, 1850, 60, 1940, uh-huh. 1965, sure. Sure. more recently. And the Pettus Bridge. I mean, this is recent. Um, yeah, actual, actual manifestations of yes, contempt is, for someone on the basis of their race. It is socially unacceptable, right? right? And because of that, one would presume that you would make a bit of a logical leap there, not too far of a leap, and say it's socially unacceptable for a reason, and that means things have gotten slightly better. Whereas the other way of looking at it is to say, it's socially unacceptable, but now it's just subterranean, and now I'm... Like, we talked about this, this um, woman who's saying, like, I coughed on the on the subway, and everyone... Uh, she was Asian, and it's like, everyone ran, ag- ran away from me, and it's like, this is what it's <laughs> like to be Asian during a crime. It's like, no, this is what it's like to cough in a fucking train. That's it's exactly like anyone, right. do, Literally, anyone coughs in a train, you're running away. Yeah, no, the and response the, would be the same if it was me. Exactly. I'd be like, what the fuck? Like, I'd be like putting, I'm running. And, and the other thing is like, by the way, the guy who was like beat the, or the woman who attacked the woman on the bus because she was Asian and like coronavirus thing. It's like, it, why are you fighting her? <laughs> that's, that's not social distance. You're punching her in the face and everyone's spitting and blood. It's like, it's a really bad Bad social distancing. But the point, the point being is that, you know, at, right now, it's like I've seen so much of this, is it trying to inject this with the poison of, uh, of race, um, this poisonous conversation, which never goes anywhere because no one feels comfortable about speaking really openly about it. And then on the other end of it, the people who do introduce this in places where I don't think it should be introduced, and there's obviously places where it's perfectly rational to introduce it, is that because there's no check on it, there's an inflation, Right. The inflation of if you don't check, if you don't ha- engage people in an argument about this, and you have to leave it to Camille Foster or John McWhorter or people of like disparate political backgrounds, by the way, and they believe different things, but they 
are kind of united on sort of general principles in this and fight back in this stuff. If you have to leave it to, to, to people, no one else is fighting this battle. So you, the, the, the claims become increasingly fantastical and like nobody's there to bring it back in. I mean, we've all seen once a week uh, some claim that's just like, come on, really? Really? And you would expect a thousand people on Twitter to get involved and be like, dude, come the fuck on. You know, because Twitter, that's what Twitter's for, to mock people, mm-hmm. to make them look silly, to be assholes, mm-hmm, to be that sort of but no one does it in these claims because it's not worth it. And I can make specific examples of claims, but it's not, I mean, you know what I'm saying. Jeff. One, uh, mm-hmm. one thing to like the most positive interpretation of that might be something like this. After nine 11, when Camille was still in short pants, um, <laughs> there was this, w- he, by the way, it was 42, but he was just wearing, he was, a <laughs> yeah. trend at the time. he was like a Japanese soldier during world war two <laughs> hat. Um, there was a, uh, this preemptive wave of, of nausea, of of unsettledness, uh, we're we're bracing ourselves for the anti-Muslim yeah. violence all over the country, and just as there have been, in, including and perhaps especially in New York City, individual anecdotal cases of people being awful to uh, people who are or are even perceived to be Asian. This happened to people mm-hmm. I know, um, uh, or the people's wives who I know, and that we all know. But yes. That's happened, but um, it took like nine months to 12 months to 18 months after 9-11 for people to uh, recognize that it actually didn't happen. We were so ready for it to happen. There was a Sikh family, a gas station in New Jersey, I think, that was torched. It's in Arizona, I think. Or Arizona, yeah. but there was some other thing in New Jersey, too. There were like acts of Maybe violence. People too, yeah. died. Like it was, yeah. It's but it's also. And it's always because racists are such dickheads and idiots it's always like yeah it's always six it's never the actual people that's going after you you can't even find us come on find the people that you supposedly hate there's a there's a book that uh written by uh, gustav niebuhr who writes about religion for washington post i reviewed this i think in the wall street journal like five ten years ago is he related to yeah he's a nephew i believe of of reinhold and so he has uh like reinhold he's interested in issues of religion and society and interfaith pluralism and a bunch of other things and he was assigned i believe by the washington post after 9 11 like go out and find america being awful reactionary and violent to muslims and so he went and he found anecdotes and he was ready to go but then he is a good reporter and was reporting and reporting. One thing that I noted at the time, um, uh, being pretty sensitive in that moment to these accusations um, uh, in general, but also just like uh, looking at the way that Americans were reacting to to September 11th, you know, the the uh, bestselling list in, in the New York Times was just filled with uh, all kinds of books, including like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, like from Beirut to Jer- Jerusalem, but like even more dense academic tomes. Like Americans are trying to figure that out the Middle East. <laughs> it wasn't like the books that were being sold wasn't like some kind of Ann Coulter. And, and forgive me, Ann, if I'm, I'm misrepresenting you here, but it wasn't like some kind of like we must punch Muslim in the face. It wasn't Michelle Malkin's in defense of internment that was on the bestseller list. It was um, actually like, let's try to figure out what the hell is happening there. And so uh, Gustav Niebuhr goes around and discovers that actually the incidences of anti-Muslim violence are pretty small. In fact, they're much uh, fewer than we would ever expect, and 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 the instances of 
interfaith, like people trying to figure out how to like get in there and, and seek mutual understanding was crazy. It was off the charts and very super interesting. And he ended up writing a book about it, which was, which was great to, uh, to watch that. I wonder if that's happening now. So like the, the, the reflex is to worry about it. And of course we should worry about that, 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 that the people are being targeted because they are perceived by their looks as in the Sikhs, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to their actual reality to be uh, allied with the people who did these monstrous things. Um, but the less positive spin on that is that uh, we just assume that everyone around us is monsters. And mm-hmm. to Moynihan's point, Briefly, so like we, uh, Michael and I have been talking about doing a 1989 um, uh, special Patreon issue, and we're going to do that. One of the movies that came mm-hmm. out there was was one of my favorite movies, and we'll all probably disagree on this to some degree. By the way, you always say "reader" and "issue." I know. With the podcast, I, I can't. Just I can't stop. <laughs> You'll never. Get I can't. I can't. It's like it's like reader mail. Reader mail. Reader mail. Yeah. Uh, no, it's do the right thing, which is a movie that's near and dear to my heart. And like, go. Um, and we should like the three Tawana of us. Tawana told the truth. Tawana told the truth. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there, um, including and one of the reasons why I like it and still revere it as a movie. She didn't. Is that right? No, but like, like he's enough of an artist that he shows that. Um, everyone is kind of wrong, including him. Like his own, I believe his own interpretation of that movie is wrong, but that's not important for this. What's important <laughs> is that like, like uh, there is anti-Korean racism in that movie. Like the Korean grocer in that movie is like, is totally unfairly kind of targeted. The dude wearing a Larry Bird jersey is basically almost like almost hate crime Dawn just because he's wearing a Larry Bird jersey. So therefore he must be racist. Like there's all kinds of collective negative judgments being made by groups against other groups in that movie, which looking at it 30 years later, looks like science fiction. We wouldn't do that. If some dude wore a Bird jersey, we'd be like, high five. And I hated Larry Bird for the same reasons 30 years ago. But like, it sounds silly now. And we're we're a much better French like Indiana. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you, it's funny that as you know, Matt, as um, working in uh, media in various different media organizations, 90% 90% of the time, it's not, I don't even think it's malicious and politically malicious, or we're going to go out with a narrative. I don't believe that that's how it works. I think that people's presumptions about the world is they don't believe that there's anything weird about them. They don't believe that there's another side. It's, it's bien pensant opinion. Everyone in their, at their dinner party thinks the same thing. It's not like a conspiracy. But how many times have you seen it? And I've seen it a million times of the things that haven't happened yet but they tell you to go out and find them. And like, it will be like, oh, um, I bet there's, uh, you know, anti-Chinese racism. Go ask people in Chinatown if they've experienced racism, right? That's not exactly how you, how you report stories. Going out and finding, because you're also thumbing the scale, because people like that, that, that uh, either tweet or piece that I was referencing when people said... Um, and the woman said that they're running away from me because I was coughing and because I'm Asian and blah, blah, blah. And people are moving. There was a, I, I sent you guys actually an Instagram story from a friend of a friend who, who screenshotted it. And it was like, they put us at the back of this restaurant. And if you know the layout of the restaurant, it's, that's first of all, where you're seated first. And second of all, they were doing the distancing thing at the time. And they were like, they're doing this because we're Asian. It's like, no, 
No, because they're at half capacity now. <laughs> it's just what they're doing. But there's there's this desire when you go out to find the story that you are tasked with finding it. You will find it every time. And it's very, very hard to not find it because, you know, two examples make a trend. And you can write about those two examples. I've seen it a lot in this. I mean, look, if you ask anyone in this city who's paying attention, and these are the ones who are paying attention, how likely is it for you to die, somebody with coronavirus and no previous symptoms, in your 20s, in your 30s? Well, I saw a number. I saw this thing in the paper. I saw this one in the paper. I saw this one. I saw this one too. I said, but I saw this other one. That's three out of thousands of cases, right? But those are always front and center. Every one of those examples has been a story. So much so, the two recent examples have been debunked. Um, I mean, there's been a bunch of debunking going on, which is not hitting the mainstream in a lot of ways. The Connecticut one, Ned Lamont, said mm-hmm. there was a perfectly healthy person, and then they walked that back and said something else happened. And we don't know what that is, but but it was it was not corona. There was a, chi- a baby mm-hmm. who was, I think, six weeks old in L.A. That came out as a big story. That turns out not to have been the case. And this is not to say that this doesn't happen, because it does happen with young people and, and a certain set of circumstances. And I don't know. We'll see at the end of the day, you know, what the age breakout is. If you look at the data on the New York uh, City uh, website, the, the Department of Health website, you will see that it's it, as it's exceedingly rare that somebody without um, pre-existing conditions in that age will die from uh, coronavirus. But there is an enormous amount of anecdotal stuff that gets front and center. I believe that there's been a New York Post cover. You see the Daily News of the Post of somebody who was young. And it said like, no previous anything, they died. And that really affects people. Particularly Mm -hmm. when people who are not generally focusing on the news just don't. But now because it's about them, and it affects their life, you know, war in Yemen doesn't, but you can't go out of your house. So they are actually paying attention watching New York one. And I not to be a dick, but aren't, you know, maybe the most sophisticated news consumers and see this. And I've had conversations with people who are saying like, no, 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 no. It's everybody. It's everybody. And it reminds me of AIDS in a lot of, a lot of ways, because that was, it turned out that wasn't the case in that um, epidemic either, but it was constantly said that is everybody can get this as, as a, you know, not probably a great word to use for it as a prophylactic measure to make sure people weren't being reckless. And I think that's probably the same. Case well, here. just think about the way that they, that the CDC and other people talked about masks. They talked about it not to give you what the truth was, but to change your behavior until there was enough masks that they can make sure, sure. that the hospitals had it. And uh, and I think that a lot of this behavior is in the same way, like you can spread it uh, asymptotically or whatever you pronounce that word asymptomatically. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you. Every time it's different. <laughs> yeah. Asymptotically. <laughs> Asymptotically uh, is a different thing. I know, uh, yeah. but it's, it's a Mickey Cow's word, and I, I can't <laughs> not say it. Um, uh, speaking of someone who must be like hiding in his house forever now, but uh, uh, you can spread it, and so like they want people to stay in, and so it's really helpful to have those one. I mean, there's ten thousand now. I think twelve thousand people in America as of Tuesday who've died from this. When you have 12,000 dead people, there's going to be three kids. Yeah. 
at least, no matter mm-hmm. what. Like you just by by accident, there's going to be three kids. Um, uh, there's going to be a couple of like 25 year old basketball players, not many, uh, not professional, <laughs> but there's going to be there, and they will use those because that's a way to keep other people uh, from uh, going to spring break in the Fort Lauderdale. I don't yeah. think yeah. fear mongering is a, a great way for us to go about trying to prevent people from doing things that might be risky, or for, to go about trying to convince people to do things that might overall make it easier for them to implement these hard mitigation policies um, that they're trying to implement in certain places, some more than others. Um, LA and New York actually have uh, been a a bit softer than certain other parts of the world and and of the country because they haven't been so hard uh, about shutting down all aspects of society, which you could probably get into a little bit Um, in a moment. But I did, just before we move on from here, want to highlight Adolph Reed Jr.'s piece um, over at Common Dreams with the article is titled Disparity Ideology, Coronavirus, and the Danger of the Return of Racial Medicine, which I was cribbing from a little bit earlier just because I thought it was so good. And he had this uh, rather lyrical uh, little section where he said, a claim that Black people are especially vulnerable as Black people to COVID-19 or any contagion is as preposterous as a claim that unicorns are especially vulnerable. And I think that's something that will probably sound false to some percentage of the audience. Um, And I'm not really talking to you, race realist. We'll we'll have a conversation another day. But to to all the- Don't don't use their (laughs) euphemism, by the way. Just call them No, no. There's a difference between the two. Um, There's a difference between the two. The two two objections I actually have to this piece are (laughs) both that he describes um, racism in a way that I think is far too broad. He's essentially saying that anyone who believes in the reality of race is essentially doing something that is racist. And I I think that's wrong. The second thing he does um, is he specifically goes after the for-profit healthcare system, which I just don't, I don't think that argument is particularly good. Um, But I mean, it's it's common dreams. I understand. I'm just, you're 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 lucky you liked four sentences. I'm I'm giving the qualifications (laughs) since I'm endorsing the piece broadly, but I think what he does do very well is point out the various ways in which when, when people, actually invoke race in a context like this, they are actually trying to talk about specific characteristics, specific attributes that people may have, tangible things that folks do that put themselves at risk, Um, risk factors that are material that people can actually respond to and do something about, which happen to map onto these racial categories that we sloppily use. Um, And we are not alive to the fact that when we invoke race in categories like this, whatever our good intentions um, or our ignoble intentions, uh, we tend to to muddy the waters in ways that are important and make it harder and not easier to have substantive conversations about the things that really put people at risk um, and about the things that we can really do to mitigate these problems. Camille, would you be okay if having this conversation, it was more class-based? Because I don't think that these numbers hold up uh, to your point, talking about, well, black people are more likely to die. I mean, is that true of upper middle class black people who live in like the Hollywood Hills or live in the West Village or something? Or is it just people who are in, you know, they pick Chicago Mm -hmm. for a reason. Chicago has been a war zone for a number of years. Poverty is an enormous problem there. And, you know, for reasons that probably could be a, another eight episodes, poverty and obesity 
and all of these type two diabetes, all these stuff go hand in hand. I mean, aren't we just talking essentially about about a class problem? Not, not necessarily, and not narrowly. Um, one, we don't have all the data, so we can't we can't get there yet. Um, two, if Nicole Hannah Jones was here, she would probably start to highlight the fact that you know when you actually look at certain sorts of data. Uh, it indicates that even high-income Blacks tend to live in communities that have higher rates of poverty and tend to live near other things like Superfund sites that might put them at greater risk um, of having the kind of underlying conditions that might make them vulnerable to COVID. Um, or even higher-income Blacks might be at greater risk of living in areas that have uh, less access to trauma centers or something like that. And all of those things might be true. Entirely possible that, you know, Blacks are overrepresented in some of these weird ways. But what's important to note is what I'm doing here. I'm giving specific examples of actual risk factors, like things that people should pay attention to when considering whether or not they're at greater risk of contracting some disease or actually developing some malady. And the fact that it, again, loosely corresponds to this identity, this notion of being Black in whatever other historical circumstances or political circumstances might exist, like you're talking about those things indirectly. And in a circumstance where you actually want to galvanize people to respond in a particular way, I don't know that talking about those things indirectly is very useful. There is one last thing, though, to bring this complete full circle. If we're going to be serious about this and we're going to start to talk about race and all kinds of other stuff, it seems appropriate to acknowledge that in addition to those like socioeconomic factors and the historical things, like cultural realities are different too. And if members of a particular community, let's say in East New York, are having block parties, that might put you at greater risk of contracting an infection as well. If they're not adhering to particular guidelines, that might put them at greater risk as well. So if there are all these things that might put them at greater risk, and it actually has to do with compliance or at least a pattern of behavior and not so much some sort of historic grave injustice, I think you do people a disservice by not being able to address yourself to those concerns. Um, it, it's very likely that when all of, this, all of this is said and done, that the Hasidic Jewish community in Brooklyn is going to over-index for this particular virus. And it has everything to do with the sort of behavior that they've manifested throughout this. The fact that there are still large gatherings taking place and weddings taking place. And we're just outside of a couple of holidays that are very important to this community. And it's possible that folks will be getting together for religious services as well. You remember when I, I think I told this story, I can't remember on which, which episode, um, and I have this on tape, by the way, because I was recording, because um, I was planning on doing something with it. Uh, when I came back from getting tested myself, um, which I think, by the way, was wrong. <laughs> I've heard enough stories of these tests being wrong that I know I'm going to get this antibody test. And they're like, you've had it already. Um, and I was coming back and I had a mask on because they told me to wear a mask on the way out. And the, I got in a conversation for the first time and living in this neighborhood with this older Hasidic woman. And, and one woman said, oh, I need to get a mask for my my um my father he's older whatever and the woman said to me I, i'm not going to get a mask i don't need a mask i was like oh you're not worried about it? she's like no you know um we're all god's children and i trust god so and i'm just like oh wow wow when it comes to spreading these diseases 
your uh, uh, fealty to, to God is actually making me less safe. So great. Um, and that's also a factor that people don't, don't say, talk about very much. I mean, I, the people that I saw today was actually kind of crazy. There was the number of people out there and they were all praying. Uh, very, it's, it's kind of like this din of, you know, voices, not, not, uni- they're not doing it in unison. Um, and you look over and you're like, wow, this is, these are people that believe that uh, God will, 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 will smite the virus. Um, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but also to your, to your previous query, Michael, uh, Hasidic and Orthodox communities in New York City yes. are among the yeah, poorest yeah. in the city. Certainly the, the certainly the poorest Jewish yeah. communities in America, whereas yeah. the richest are like a mile and a half across yeah, the river. A friend of them. mine, a European um, friend, said it, <laughs> like I'm not ratting anybody out, so said like I didn't know Jewish people lived in projects. I was like, Yeah, those are the housing projects. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. And there's like all, all these Hasidic people coming in and out and they're like, I'm like, Yeah, 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 no. Um, no, your European anti Semitic conspiracy conspiracy theories, but the Rothschilds <laughs> do not hold true in my neighborhood. You racist. Um, although, although in this in in that particular case, it, it again is not necessarily the poverty that is instructive. It's the cultural traditions precisely. and the fact that they that they're determined to get together despite advice to the contrary. Precisely, like there is no amount of advice that could actually make them stop. Yeah, no, I think seems. you're right. I think you're right, and and I would say that you know, um, poverty um, is an indicator, um, but not not everything. The one thing I just saw because we've had conversations about about this, um, about people giving away their wealth and not, um, and, and being mau mowed online for not giving enough mm. of their wealth away. I'm wondering what the reaction is to this. By the way, there's, there's that um, kind of field hospital set up in Central Park, which I don't think has any patients yet, but it was set up by, I think, like Franklin Graham's group, Billy Graham's son, and there have been people protesting it. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw, I saw one video on on. Yeah, because they don't like the gays, gays too much. Too much. Like, you know and they what? said they won't treat the gays. No, they didn't. They would never say that. Because I don't know. Haven't said that. No, the theory. <laughs> the theory is that they're using that they chose a very public place um, in order to proselytize for their anti-gayness I mean, stuff uh, by wearing it in the flag. Of by, what, by, it's, by the it's way, all if, if they're the going to learn garbage. a few things about New York, that it's just not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. Yeah. Nope. It's not. We're nope. not like on the fence. It's like you came over. Now we're like, mm, yeah. I think this is. I think we're on the yeah. anti. If they side. save, if they save a few lives along the way, I think that's probably worth. I it. think and that's putting, all. Putting that's themselves all that at risk while they're doing it. That's I, all that I'd matters. Say that that's a pretty big deal too. And then but. for for the other ideas, we can um, uh, debate them, and they will lose. Um, yeah. Jack Dorsey, yes. the founder Twitter, of Twitter, Twitter Jack, and uh, and, and Square. Uh, the payment app you always hear being flogged on Joe Rogan's uh, podcast uh, said he's going to uh, donate. <laughs> and it's funny, people are donating. We're talking about criticism. I'm going to criticize them. Uh, he's going to donate approximately 28% of his wealth. Uh, mm-hmm. It'd be $1 billion uh, towards the COVID relief. And I'm just going to say, I'd love to see people. Well, actually, I think it's, I think it's actually to a, uh, to an, in organization he's setting up, it's going to do COVID relief, but it sounds like they're going yeah, to do some other stuff as well. Small foundation. Yeah, oh, really? Be doing some ha- UBI, some UBI research, um, as well as some stuff around like girls in tech. Okay, but it, I think the COVID, the COVID stuff is the is the beginning 
principal priority. Because um, his, his, the thinking is beyond COVID, after this is all done, we'll need to do a lot of things. Because uh, his tweet says, I'm moving $1 billion of my square mm-hmm. equity, 28% of my wealth, to start small LLC to fund global COVID-19 relief. That's yeah. the first. Uh, after we disarm this pandemic, we'll shift to girls' health and education and UBI. Um, it will operate transparently. All flows tracked here. And there's a Google Doc. Um, that's a lot of wealth um, for, I think, that maybe could be used in better better ways. Uh, but I, I mean, wow. <laughs> I'm wow. being honest. Do, do we need... Do, do you want to like seize the wealth and like redirect it towards your the personal guy... goals? Like studies for 1934, like uh, this, European... This... Political this article philosophy. says PPE, ventilators, things like that. Yeah. I, I mean, a billion dollars of, uh, of Jack's wealth. Um, from what I can tell, and I, I don't want to be caught flat-footed here and, and wrong about this, because I, I don't, I'm actually spitballing this is a bad thing to be spitballing about, um, is that we are catching up on those things. Um, we don't, I haven't heard people dying in New York City without ventilators. There was some uh, comment that Cuomo made at the um, at the uh, press conference the other day, which I think suggested that that we're good on this at the moment. Um, and it just strikes me not that one shouldn't give a billion dollars to saving people's lives, of course. Um, it just strikes me that this is a guy who's gotten so much bad press that he's been clueless and out on his his silent retreats and hasn't heard what's going on in the world. And by the way, he has a nose ring. I mean, like, dude, seriously, <laughs> what are you in four non blondes? It's not like 1992. You oh, jerk God. off stupid <laughs> nose ring. Um, anyway, uh, it's, is it no, like a it's bowl? like, it's like one, I, we're the, on video. it's one of those yeah. guys. Yeah. The stupid those, ass. Good God. Oh, God. Uh, the no, it's a hoop. In the left and he's got like a short hair. It's just very strange looking. Yeah. It's a hoop. What? Yeah. Okay. Um, this is the least of his problems. But um, <laughs> but I just I think that this scene strikes me as like I got to do something kind of thing. It's like the the private wealth version of the American government after nine eleven because he's getting so much criticism. Like I'm gonna take a billion dollars and I'm gonna give it to COVID. It's like okay, okay, okay hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. you're talking about ventilators. What do we need? Let's talk. Let's 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 sort. I mean, this guy's gotten so much bad press that he's doing this. I think that if you if you this is total speculation, but if you take away all the bad press, you're probably not going to get this kind of you know historically the bad press. You're probably not going to get this level of commitment from Jack Dorsey. So I would advise that uh, say, okay, I have a billion dollars that I want to give away. Great, fantastic. I think that's the greatest thing that one could possibly do. Um, I I just hope that it's directed uh, in the right way and say vague things like, do we need a billion dollars for UBI? Um, there's so many UBI experiments. Finland folded their UBI experiment at the end of 2018, I think, December 2018 or 2019, um, after they tried it there. I mean, there's been a lot of UBI experiments over the years um, with mixed, very mixed results. It hasn't, you know, all the people, I talked to a guy, there's an interview that I'm going to put, I'll put a bit of it online sometime because I, I interviewed a famous tech guy. Um, famous in the tech world. Um, and what a fucking asshole he was. Just a complete asshole. A young guy, and because he'd made so much money in tech, thought he was smart about everything. Really condescending and not very good at debating the points that he was making. But he basically said to me in no uncertain terms, we've made all this money 
we feel bad about it. Um, the, you know, the, the natives are getting restless and we're all focusing on UBI. And he was, he was funding UBI stuff too. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just like, I, when I see this, it's not like, you know, (laughs) I don't want somebody to give away a billion dollars. I'm just like, where, what do you do? UBI and ventilators does not sound like you've thought this thing through. That's my point. Yeah. I, my, uh, um, uh, feeling, and I say this as someone whose uh, brother works on the front lines of the healthcare industry, and his my brother's wife also does in uh, in Southern California, and I'm worried about them and and whatnot. Um, that's my precursor for saying that if we are talking six months from now, like in a normal conversation about PPE, yeah. we're just not. That's not going to happen. It's it's that is the thing that you talk about right at the moment. When you don't have as much, when you're like under maximum stress, we are not going to be at maximum stress in the healthcare system in any city in this country, probably six months from now. And we are going to all go back to the stage that we were two weeks ago when no normal person had heard PPE, let alone could even begin to pretend what it stood for. It's like it it is seriously going to be yesterday's news. One of the, I was looking back just today over, um, all of the things that I tweeted in the month of March um, uh, just for uh, separate purposes. And it's interesting to look at. And one of the, uh, not uh, me in particular, but just like, it's an interesting exercise to go through. And one of the things uh, that I had retweeted was somebody else who has gone through more than one of these uh, drills in the past um, around March 11th or 12th said, what you want to think of in the run-up of, of a, of a pad- pandemic or epidemic or anything Edemic. like that is um, <laughs> an endemic, <laughs> an e- a colonic. <laughs> the thing you want to think about uh, is um, what you wish you would have known two weeks ago or like look two weeks in the future and imagine where you're going to be. And it's true. If you look two weeks back, from where we are now, I don't know what day that would be. We, this would look like science fiction that what yeah. we're talking about right now. And it's been like this the entire time over the last month or so. Um, but part of that science fiction is we are suddenly all like experts in this, like, you know, three days ago, four or five days ago, you didn't see people on the street. That many people wearing masks. Now almost everybody's wearing masks. And they're sneering at you if you don't wear masks, by the way. Pretty soon we're all going to look like Bane. Yeah. You, Narc Moynihan, are taking videos and the fucking love gov is using them to shame people and like find hassets a thousand bucks. If you the people that were out there, you would have taken video of them, made fun of them too, because they're all hateful monsters. Not for that reason, but, uh, but you know, just, just, for, just for other reasons. Just whatever you do, don't share that stuff with Emmanuel. Uh, no, just, just to say that like the psychology in these moments and the stuff that we're understandably hyper-focused on is just going to look so different a month from now mm-hmm, yeah. and two months from now. And like Fauci, Fauci so, was on, um, before you was on the Wall Street, was that? I was going to say, before you go to Fauci, I wanted to, to comment on the thing you mentioned earlier uh, about Jack's fortune being set mm. aside for charity. There's a piece over at Recode. You, you'd asked if anyone was complaining about this and I, the piece was not published with this in mind. This is from like July of 2019. Um, but it's about these donor advised funds that a lot of Valley folks use when they're sort of getting ready to set aside a bunch of their money. Um, and the, the basic complaint of the piece is that folks get an opportunity to have this massive tax break right away 
Um, they get to tuck their money away in these accounts, which are generally like Wall Street managed money that can grow and grow and grow and grow. Um, and they're under no obligation to disperse the majority of that money before they die. So obviously, I suppose they could benefit from some change in tax law if something like that were to happen, or they just might not give enough of the money away. Um, but the piece bemoans the various ways in which these people have uh, a great deal of influence over nonprofits and how some of the nonprofits find themselves needing to to try to satisfy the various demands of their donors in order to get money. I mean, Matt, you work at a nonprofit. I imagine there's some trying to satisfy some of your donors, and I won't put you on the spot and force you to talk about that. But it, it does seem to me, in some ways, a rather superfluous complaint. Um, it's certainly possible that the tax code is designed in a way that creates dodgy um, gifts, dodgy vehicles for um, private philanthropy. Totally possible. Um, I think it's also an important fact that it's not as though if all of that money was captured for like taxes, all of it would go to great causes and great purposes anyhow. Um, and a lot of the people who do open these funds do, in fact, support pretty remarkable causes. I mean, the stuff that Bill Gates is doing now uh, related to, to COVID um, in terms of setting up facilities, funding research and development for vaccines, even before they know if they'll be able to work or get approval because he can afford to. I mean, I think that's pretty spectacular, especially from a guy awesome. who was one of the first and most prominent people out talking about this years before this happened. Um, and we we kind of didn't listen to him. So I certainly don't begrudge them the ability to spend their money on stuff. I wonder if anyone who criticized them... Donor advice funds. Well, I wonder if anyone who criticized uh, somebody like Jack... Um, mm -hmm. We'll step up now and, 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 and praise them. I presume that these are the type of people that are not willing to praise anybody who has that kind of money. Um, or, you know, I don't know what the hatred of Jack uh, Dorsey is. I don't, I don't pay attention to the guy. But I suspect <laughs> it's so, not going to so be like... Reasons. Yeah, well, I suspect it's not like the nose ring is really what I'm fixated on. I suspect <laughs> I it, yeah. it's not, it's not going to be like, oh, cool, now... now now he's done it, right? We're, we're, we're happy. And to your point of like, it's, it's, it doesn't take a genius. And I think anybody on any side of the political spectrum will realize that, that there is a lot less waste and mismanagement of money when it goes from Jack into his little uh, fund that he's setting up to solve COVID mm -hmm. rather than just writing a check to the federal government and hoping that, that you know, it's dispersed in the, the, the appropriate way. Because, I mean, Fauci, this is the point that I was going to make, which is related to this. Fauci said a couple of things in his interview with the Wall Street Journal. One was that in a couple of weeks, and he made a funny little comment, like every time I say this, I should preface it because, because sometimes it doesn't work out that way. But he said you know, that he's pretty confident in a couple of weeks that um, there will be a series of tests that will be available and there's, there's two two versions of it. It'll be available that you that you will be able to get a test and to use the most basic and simple language and not use the language you use that will be able to tell you if you've had coronavirus, if you've had past tense, right? If you've built up an immunity, you have the, you've had the coronavirus. This will be available in two weeks. This is a, according to Fauci. The other thing that he said is that if you look as I have, and uh, for reasons that I'll explain sometime later, gone through all the filings for emergency 
approval, there's a special emergency approval for the FDA of people trying to make COVID tests, the number that have been approved, you can't even keep track of them. There's London, Toronto, all over the US. Um, I don't think I'm talking out of school saying this, is that in two days from now, I will be um, with someone who's making, is in the final stages of a vaccine, or they say that they're Mm. the final stages of vaccine, of developing a vaccine. Um, These are not government initiatives, right? These are all people racing to make that money, and thank God they are, because racing to make that money is going to make everybody a lot safer and is going to get this down to zero. And we can all tell whether we have that antibody, then we can go out again. Imagine that. Imagine if everybody could take, you know, and, and, you know, as a diabetic, I couldn't imagine that I would have this thing on my arm that I could look at my phone. Are you kidding me? A phone is going to look down, look at my phone. It's going to tell me what my blood sugar is at all time. I don't have to prick my finger. The idea of that was not even in, in most diabetics' brains 20 years ago. And, ima- and we're, we're, so, we're so much faster at this now because everyone's throwing money at this. The entire world is focused. There's no election anymore, <laughs> as far as we can tell, because everyone's focused on this. Imagine the speed and the rapidity of which people are attacking this. Could there be something that, you know, with, like my you know, blood sugar test, right? Like mm-hmm. breaking a finger, they could tell you if you've had this and you're okay and, you know, you can hug me now. You can, you can, you don't have to, you know, put on a face shield getting close. I mean, you do, but that's for totally different reasons. But like, yeah. imagine that happening. And I can imagine that happening. And that's because all of these companies out there, these mean mustache twisting companies who are looking for a profit are doing something that no government uh, is capable of in the time span in which the private uh, uh, market is, is going to succeed. Yeah. And I, they, they will succeed. I want to point out that for those who haven't consumed it yet, uh, some of the richest conspiracy theory insanity <laughs> about coronavirus has to do with 5G. Like Bill Gates and Fauci and 5G, 5G and the WHO. It brings well, it all no together. WHO conspiracy. Uh, it's, WHO is bad. That's it's see, bad. look, look, look. That's a conspiracy. Run, run by the about. Chinese. No, yeah, no, but like. The, <laughs> No, but like uh, the, I love that part of the part the of the conspiracy. It <laughs> <laughs> was a different Camille, voice. Is that Gates? Gates is in on the plot yeah. with the red Chinese. Oh sure, you know what yeah, yeah, sure. That's, that's, that's some garbage. But if he was, we wouldn't tolerate that. We <laughs> yeah. don't stand for that round here. No. Um, this this week though, um, there's been a couple of things. It looks like the the CIA is starting to scrutinize. Um, they'd already been scrutinizing the numbers coming out of China, as every sensible person should, yes. and as far too many journalistic outlets are not doing. Um, every once in a while, there'll be this like sort of weird caveat like buried in the article, but the headlines are always the same. Um, I saw uh, something yesterday. I think Moynihan, you sent it, a screenshot of The Guardian. Oh, uh, yes, um, yes, 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 yes. The, the, the news that Boris Johnson had been moved to ICU. Um, and there was a sort of a dual headline giving you all of the news of the day. Boris Johnson moved to ICU. Chinese, on the same day, Chinese report zero cases yeah, yeah, of sure. coronavirus, zero. which is yeah. just, it's totally absurd. The verb yeah. report is very, very helpful there. Like, it's true. 
It's true. They reported zero cases. And they're lying. And they have been lying about yeah. this crap systematically. David Burge, Iowa Hawk, he's like, and you know what else? Uh, China, uh, China has reported uh, zero fatalities in Tiananmen Square. To this day. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to this day. Yeah. Well, you know what they say. They, they, this is good. actually true. This is actually true. And there are de- Western deniers, too. Mm-hmm. The Chinese comp to 300 that day. And they say none of it was actually in Tiananmen. It was a few blocks away. Oh, I'm yeah. not kidding. Yeah. That's legitimately the, the legitimately what they say. It was the I red light district. It. I did an interview with a woman while I was in Hong Kong who um, she owns a blue shop. It's a little restaurant and the blue shops are the ones that are pro Beijing. She didn't designate herself a blue shop. The protesters who had been destroying her property and attacking her store occasionally, not to qualify as bad when it happens, but it was not like in epidemic but still anyways she was explaining to me that you know what happened in Tiananmen it bothers her so much that everyone believes this fake news she used that phrase um, about Tiananmen she's seen the videos and she knows that those violent protesters killed many many members of the people's liberation army yeah they did kill a few but not not I mean I think that the count that independent researchers have come up with is like seven or eight or something like that. It's been, it's, it's a low number, but you know, um, uh, all the APCs that they set on fire, rightfully so, because they had brought in, uh, this is your history lesson for the day. They (laughs) had brought in, um, uh, the last phase they had cycled out. Um, and it was July, I guess it was July or early June, early July where they, they, um, the fourth of the fifth, when they, they got people out of the square by killing them, June, June, um, is they brought a number of people in from People's Liberation Army units from the country that were not urban types and were very susceptible to the propaganda that they had been being fed about these counter-revolutionaries and that they were murdering soldiers and they were, tor- tor- they were capturing and torturing soldiers. And they came out with a very, very aggressive uh, tactics and they were newly cycled in and they were not uh, from... Uh, Beijing. Uh, but there's, I, I had mentioned it before that um, there was a fantastic documentary on Tiananmen that uh, BBC aired last year on the anniversary that was on Storyville, which is their one of their documentary series, um, which is definitely worth watching. And it's terrifying. And um, I watched it again not long ago, which is why all this is fresh in my head. But what I did after I watched it is I went out on the search for um, the deniers because they overlap with the thing that I'm doing. And when I say to people that I'm going to do this manufacturing consent thing because a number of people have requested it, which is a Patreon thing, which I'm going to talk about the book just by myself um, uh, at some length, is I've been reading it, um, reread it for the first time in a while, uh, making lots of notations. Um, and you end up um, overlapping with these people because Edward Herman, who's the guy who wrote the book with Noam Chomsky, um, and Chomsky said he was the primary writer, is somebody that uh, said the Rwandan genocide not what you think. Because people, there, there's a, a class of person who is uh, quite happy, also denies that anything happened in, uh, in, uh, in the Balkans that yeah. would approach genocide. No, sh- Matt no Welch, massacre in Srebrenica. Yeah. No, it didn't happen. Everyone fell into ditches and they got out later. Um, Matt Welch, who's a, uh, quite a clever guy who does a podcast that I tend to listen to, uh, he 
uh, gave me a phrase a long time ago, slowbo Googling, which was, <laughs> which was when you find somebody who's dodgy, you would, you would Google them and see what their opinion on Slobodan Milosevic was. And <laughs> invariably, they'd be like, you know, not the bad guy. He's not, you know, he's There was he's actually, it was, uh, if I remember the, uh, the thing correctly, and I probably don't, but um, this was the beginning of what turned out to be a two-decade fight with Justin Raimondo of Antiwar.com, who died like six months ago, five months ago. Um, uh, in that uh, he's someone who always called me a neocon uh, and a bunch of other things <laughs> besides, which is funny since Moynihan is the neocon, as we all know. <laughs> um, but like, uh, I, I just don't like the Soviet Union. I had, <laughs> I'm stuck in a different era. Uh, our newspaper in Prague, which I don't know if, you, if I've shared this with listeners, but I lived in Prague for a while uh, in the early 1990s. Uh, but uh, from That's our, Matt's sarcasm. Uh, yeah, it's my Camille great sarcasm. But from we, we first started in our first issue was in March of 1991, and shots uh, first uh, uh, rang out, I, I believe, in Slovenia in like May uh, of that year. And from that point on, we had a piece about the Yugoslav war in our newspaper, every single edition that it came out, we had multiple correspondents who were besieged in Sarajevo. Um, I mean, the talking about the dearest friends of mine that could possibly be were in Zagreb, where elsewhere, like people who broke the stories about the rape camps, who broke the uh, stories about the, the massacre in Srebrenica. And so I come back uh, to United States in 1998 and I start to see that there are is a group of people, a lot of uh, a fair amount, describe themselves as uh, anti-war libertarians. And this is before the word libertarian meant that much to me. Um, uh, who had said, uh, you know, this is all just like CIA. It's made up. There were no graves. There wasn't anything. And like I, you know, I uh, lived in places with uh, we knew, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of of uh, uh, war. Dodgers, for lack of a better word, in Prague and Budapest and elsewhere, you know, people my age who wanted to not fight and die. Um, and they're some of my best friends to this day. Uh, many of them are some of my best friends. And uh, and as I said, we had people who were covering these things and breaking these things. And so I would share these manifestos, these petitions that were signed with people, um, with my war correspondent friends and saying, what would you say to this? Um, like, you know, give me some uh, intellectual ammunition and they just would be so apoplectic. And it's it's very hard for me to take seriously any single person who signed their name. And it's not just like, um, oh, Slobodan Milosevic should not be tried at The Hague. OK, that's an argument that you can have. It's more like he didn't do anything wrong ever. Uh, kind of petitions that were signed there. Uh, and yeah, people who sign their name to such things in the name of thinking that they're against imperialism can fuck themselves. It, it is something to always be be on guard against. And it doesn't matter if it's um, people who are libertarians, particularly on this issue, um, or if it's people that are neo-Nazis when it comes to the Holocaust, or it's people on the left when it comes to Cambodia when it comes to the Hue massacre, which nobody remembers um, in 1968 in Vietnam, uh, which Noam Chomsky said never happened or was, was overplayed. Um, when you get into that territory and you are ideologically predisposed to one side of a conflict, and it's typically one ideology, not maybe not an even ideology, it's got some rough edges. You, I mean, your ideology can be as simple as 
you know, my opposition to American foreign policy is such that I am going to try to be on the other side of every issue, which you don't have to do. Um, I've made this point a number of times. You don't have to um, shoot people in a soccer stadium if you don't like Allende. Um, it's not necessary. Um, some people decide because, oh, we like the reforms as sort of free market types. We like the reforms that, uh, that, that happened from 1973 to mid-80s um, in Chile. Okay, you can say that, but do it while also denouncing what came with that. Those things don't have to come together. But you always see this. I mean, genocide denial is a very particular thing. And some people have written about this, but like, you know, I always wondered about Nazis where I was the most interesting ones because they denied something that they wished had happened. They're not, they're anti-Semites. They don't like Jews. They want this to happen. They support the rhetoric that you will find in the Volkische Beobachter and, you know, Mein Kampf and Der Angriff and all these things, the Nazi publications. They like that rhetoric. They defend it, which is genocidal. It is, to use Daniel Goldhagen's phrase, eliminationist. And then when you say, aha, but they did it, they say, well, no, they didn't. Oh, they would never do something like that. But you want that to be true because you spend all of your time talking about how much you hate the Jewish control of banks or whatever they might say. Um, so I always found that the funniest one. But on the other side of that, of that, of that it, when a good example, and this is not a genocide thing, this is a sort of uh, mass death by, by repulsive policy. Think of Venezuela. Don't you dare, this is really funny, the DSA people I remember seeing in this, somebody said, don't you dare bring up Venezuela as something that we support. We were democratic socialists. Okay, fine, fine. This is totally fine. This is when I did a, a DSA story. And then I went to this particular DSA chapter's Twitter feed. And I, I wanted to say to them later, I didn't actually bring it up because it didn't, we didn't get to it. But why is it that when you say, don't ever kind of throw this all on us, why is it that you always, I can always find a tweet of you defending them? <laughs> if they're not what they are, what they say they are, they're not. They're not sexual. They're not, no, 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 no. That's that's not. It's not. Has never been tried. It keeps everybody that that has done it in the past. It's, it's totally false and totally fake. And it ends up in mass death and penury and 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 imprisonment and you know execution squads. But that's just. It's just they've just gotten it wrong. But there's always a point at which you're defending it, and then at the end you say, oh no, no, no that's not. That's not what we're after. Try to find, you know, Ken Livingston, try to find um, the, everybody in the, 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 the part of the Labor Party, which has been basically run out of the party now, not run out of the party, but they've lost their controlling share with, with Jeremy Corbyn being, being gone as party leader. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, you can find him. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's staffers, this guy, all defending Venezuela, always praising Hugo Chavez, etc. And, and now they're like, oh, no, no, how dare you tar us with this? Well, if that's not socialism, okay, I'm willing to listen. But why are you always defending it? You're not defending other things. You're not going around defending, you know, the government of, of you know, Paraguay. Why? It's a South American government. Poor people seems to fit all the criteria that you're interested in. You're not defending them. Why? You're defending those guys. And then you're defending Rafael Correa in Ecuador. And you're defending Nicaragua. They stopped a little bit in Nicaragua. You're defending Cuba. You're defending... Why do you keep on defending these things that aren't actually good implementations of the ideology that you represent there's a uh, there's Confusing a habit of mind and i don't think that it depends on being right wing or left wing at all in this case um but it's worth 
looking at, and I've been paying attention to it recently in terms of Viktor Orban in Hungary, mm. uh, country I lived in for three years. I don't know if I mentioned that either. Um, but uh, um, the way that the American conservatives talk about Viktor Orban, there are two basic types of that. One is that, you know what, he is forthrightly, thank God someone's finally defending Western civilization on its own terms and he's doing it. He's a he's a chauvinist, and that's right. That's what we should be doing. Okay, um, that's one. Pat Buchanan was saying this ten years ago, um, and now it's become much more of a mainstream conservative thing. But the other one that's as common, if not more common, and it has its own resonances in an American political context, is not that you're defending him, but you are attacking the media caricature against it. Um, I, I I clicked on a thing from Human Events. Um, okay. Is that still publishing? Uh, it's still it publishing. Is. Some some smirking uh, uh, dickwad was uh, talking about um, Victor Orban. <laughs> it's like, oh, I guess the Victor Orban is now a dictator, and it's a shame that you don't have the video because my eyebrows are like rocking right now. <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah. that's basically it. Was like it's ter- <laughs> it's a terrible reading, and he's going through all these headlines and. Almost all the headlines are accurate, like Victor Orban's parliament gave him powers to suspend elections indefinitely and do all these things. All these are true. But like the very first headline was like, oh, he's being a dictator. Right. OK, so, yeah, he's not being a dictator. That's a, that's too strong. It's, that's hyperbolic uh, description. Um, but the entire package of the 20 minute video, at least the three minutes that I was able to get through before wanting to throw my entire uh, computer into the toilet. Um, was uh, this just anti-media thing? And you can find this. And uh, as someone who is who has watched and uh, and uh, uh, and bemoaned uh, sort of uh, idiotic, too easy media tropes about various complicated uh, political figures who is are much easier to describe as a dictator than actually understanding them. And in in this particular case. Uh, Vladimir Mechiar in Slovakia is, is the is the perfect example who has a lot of things in common with Donald Trump. Um, uh, like it is frustrating to see that happen all the time. Um, and it's also while that is frustrating and worthy of critique, as are all the media organizations. Um, it's also a crutch or it is oftentimes used as a crutch to say to just go anti-media on your defenses of Viktor Orban because you don't actually have to bother defending Victor Orban, right? Or you... Well, it's the same thing in Trump, isn't it? I mean, the number Very of much. people that you see on the cover of that National Review against Trump issue in 2016, um, a lot of them have become, you know, professional never-Trumpers, um, so much so that I think they've, they've just become obsessed in a way that, like, the George Conways of the world, it's like, dude, that cannot be healthy for you yeah, to be let, that. Let go. Just for a second. I mean, you can hate Trump in the way that I hate Trump and it's totally healthy. And I don't think I'm going to have a heart attack because the, of it. The Moynihan hate Trump is, is a healthy, it's a healthy, hate. it's, it's a strong hatred, but it's a healthy hatred. But it, you know, whereas <laughs> um, the, the, um, the other end of that is people that you talk to and they tell you, you know, sotto voce that in the, you know, in, when you're in a phone call with them or texting them or something that they can't stand the guy. But their enemy that they've decided to to deputize as their enemy is is, is the media, which is worse. Um, you know, Trump's a shithead and he's ruining the party and he has no principles that even align with the conservatism that these people hold. But, you know, the, what the things they say about him are so unfair. Um, both of those things can be true. And uh, but the focus is always is almost exclusively on one or the other. 
I mean, I can't, I mean, how can I agree? I agree with both of them in a way. I agree with the never Trumpers and in, in, in some broad sense, you know, getting way ahead of themselves on, on, on a lot of these issues, uh, Russia in particular. But I also agree that the media stuff gets a little silly. It's like we don't want a, a White House briefing where everyone's Jim Acosta. It's just not, nobody wants to live in that world. Except Why not? For, <laughs> except for what, every what media critic. I mean, Moynihan, like every single day you have people saying, you know, it's just, they're shaking their damn heads. Either they want the thing to not be broadcast. Like <laughs> Howard Dean, was it, what you guys sent, sent it, this along? He's like, I'm not going to do my like remote uh, uh, feed uh, guest spot from my Vermont basement in my pantsless uh, uh, condition because they're still yourself now. Yeah, kind of because they're still showing this uh, daily White House briefing. And they also want the reporters to uh, by definition or just any time that Trump says, ah, you know, that that's a rude question. I'm going to the next one that it's their job, the reporters to ask whatever the previous reporters question is like, God damn enough. We passed around the three of us, uh, Josh Barrow, um, who who knows who he works for anymore. Bloomberg business insider, one of these things. Um, he still does his like, podcast podcast. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Nice guy. Uh, oh, he does left, right and center now, doesn't he? On yeah. PCRW? Yeah. He's been doing that yeah. for a while. And he has the thing with the, uh, with the uh, Pope hat as well. Uh, Ken white, um, uh, all the president's lawyers, I think it's called, but anyways, he had a, a, a tweet thing very short uh, this week, just saying like, knock it off. Basically like it, it's oh, and, and brutally attacked for it too. But I don't know if you saw the response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, like, how dare you in this? I, I honestly this- don't understand. And, and I, I honestly question Camille um, uh, as a person morally. <laughs> he chooses Camille does. She chooses to watch these white house press conferences <laughs> and like texting us excitedly that Trump said a good thing once. Like, <laughs> why are you watching this shit? What's wrong not, with you? That's not what happened. That's yeah. not what happened. All right. Uh, but actually, like, seriously, I mean, why are you watching it? Well, no, this is a good as, a, as a neutral third party, I can say that is absolutely what happens. <laughs> that's not what happens. <laughs> Constantly, you're not neutral. Yeah, uh, you throw me under Shooting the bus so many times. Flare-ups from from Virginia. Well, no, like, let me let me let me answer the question. Um, yeah. Considering we we do a, a weekly podcast where we occasionally talk about the news of the day and various things that are happening in the world, it it seems appropriate for me to actually watch these things so that I can comment on them. In the same way, I'd like to read the articles that we're talking about so that I can have some idea what's going on and perhaps do a little bit of research. So yes, I watched most of yesterday's presser, although I missed um, today's. And I was struck by, of course, the sort of theatrical combat that takes place, the, the kabuki dance that goes on between the journalists who ask, in some cases, only ostensibly tough questions, uh, and the president who responds often forcefully to anyone who isn't duly deferential to him. Um, there are certainly folks from a particular network um, who, who fillet him while asking questions. Pre- Mr. President, you are so strong and tough and also good and virtuous. Why do you love Americans so much? He's, oh, that's a great question. <laughs> it, in the Thank face. you for that beautiful yeah. question. I appreciate yeah. it. Good uh, question. Cream, Thank creaming you. on your shirt. Um, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but, but in other instances, you know, he gets a, he gets a question about, you know, the, the, the IG report that had come out that said that the, um, the stockpile that we have is uh, not in particularly great shape. 
And there have been a couple of stories, actually, about masks being delivered that were like falling apart or ventilators that were broken that were delivered to California. Um, California, in turn, to their credit, took these busted ventilators and had them fixed and then used them and has now shipped them on to another part of the country. Um, good for them. Um, but there were things that I saw yesterday that I thought were interesting and a, a stream of thought that I had that I shared with you guys via text, which it's still privately not a, yes, not a fully formed idea, but it is something that I'm willing to to share in this context. The two things that I noticed though about the the Trump presser were um and actually this is one thing, but two instances of it, uh that Trump is a liar. Like and he lies about ridiculous things frequently. Like when he says I knew this was a pandemic from the start. I always knew it. I knew it before anyone else. Um, <laughs> the same, the same thing that he said. We'll have this under control. Like by next week, there will be zero um, coronavirus patients in America. Whatever. But he said two things during the presser that I was sort of shocked by. One, someone asked a question about Boris Johnson, to which Donald Trump responds, "Well, you know, Boris is in ICU, and with this particular." virus, we know how bad that is. So it's a pretty serious situation. At the time, the story that was coming out of the the government in the UK was, well, yeah, they took him there, but it was precautionary. They wanted to keep his symptoms from worsening. Donald Trump is supposed to give some sort of diplomatic response to a question like that. And instead, he's <laughs> incredibly candid. And yeah. another moment happens where the admiral is answering yeah. questions about the number of ventilators that are in the federal stockpile. And the, the admiral says, oh, we don't answer questions about that. We do not give out the inventory. And Donald Trump is standing next to the podium where the microphone is. He just kind of leans in as the admiral steps away. We've got 9,000. It's 9,000. <laughs> yeah. 9,000 ventilators, okay? And it, it struck me in that moment that, you know, there's something also, about- Also, that's probably a fake number too. I mean, it's I'm, not even like, eh, it's I, don't think it is, I think it, it lines actually, up. Yeah, they actually, uh, later on, Mike Pence talked and they talked specific numbers at that point. And the numbers do seem to line up. But but but, but you do understand why one can be forgiven for thinking that they're totally just made up off the top. <laughs> did, of course. That's 98% of did, what of he course, did. Didn't he recently course. like say uh, some bizarre number about like the 38 million people in South uh, who live in Seoul? Because yeah. <laughs> the height, the height of the local mountain was like thirty eight hundred sure. meters or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't and know. then he's like, you know, something about mukbang videos. <laughs> I can't remember what happened after that. I don't know, but but in the moment when I when I saw that happen, That's I think the f- it, eating videos, but it's nothing <laughs> dirty. It's when they eat. Just I, I mean, saw that look in your face again. Yeah. Not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, that particular thought that, wow, this is an interesting characteristic that the president has, and it's actually something that is is good because it occasionally reveals things that you want to know as a citizen. And I thought to myself, you know, there are a couple of things about the president in the coronavirus era that seem worth underscoring, like the fact that the president has in many instances for people who actually care about like civil liberties and perhaps for base reasons has made choices that I am satisfied by, at least think, well, that's that's a good decision, or at least that's better than the bad decision you could have made. Early on, Bill de Blasio was insisting that the president should send the military into New York City, like very, very early on, and the president didn't do it. 
um, early on and perhaps still now people have been clamoring for a nationwide lockdown. And there are certainly some people who think that would be a great idea, but the president hasn't done it. And yesterday, again, talked about the reason for his not doing it is his respect for federalism and the Constitution. We'll come back to that. And, 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 again and, and similarly, again. and similarly, like the calls for him to nationalize GM and perhaps any other manufacturer of things so that they, he could mandate that they start to build ventilators and do all kinds of other stuff. Um, he didn't do that. He sent a few tweets. Um, and while he did invoke the National Production Act, it's not clear to me that they've actually gone ahead and nationalized some business. Well, they haven't nationalized anything, but they're, I mean, certainly telling them what to do, telling them what to produce. They're, they're clamoring about this, but have they actually done any sort of formal declarations where they're requiring folks to do this production? I, I don't think don't, they have done that. No, I don't know. But um, the, the thing that worries me about it is um, Donald Trump uh, using this in other ways, particularly when it comes to trade and it comes to China and it mm -hmm, comes to, mm -hmm. you know, it, there's a lot of ways that, you know, a company like Ford or GM or whatever can be uh, put under the thumb of yes. the administration in a very bad There's a way. lot of cajoling that can happen um, from the federal government. Yeah. So that, look, I'm not saying that any of these things is, it's is like, an do assurance it. If that If you don't do it, we're going to make it really bad for you. Yeah, I'm not suggesting that the, any of these things is an assurance that he won't do the bad things, I mentioned all of that stuff, and my suspicion isn't so much that the president is doing it because of his dedication to federalism and the Constitution. I suspect it's because it it's a it's an approach that gives him a great deal of cover. Mm. Like the states are doing most of the work, he gets to keep them at arm's length, and by not engaging in this sort of nationalizing of industries or um, sort of directly getting involved in other aspects of the response and the recovery, essentially quarterbacking in some ways, hopefully being able to glory in the successes that seem to be happening on the West Coast. Like he he gets to do all those things while not seeming like the guy who is actually at the steering wheel, responsible for everything. So I suspect that's why we have that good outcome there. But it did strike me that the situation could be far worse if the president was the sort of fascist autocrat that he had been promised to and be. And that people are begging him to be. Yes, right? which again is not to suggest that he doesn't have some nasty impulses. Specific to your point, how many times are people like, my God, and de Blasio is the worst about this, of like, you know, Mr. President, use, like, to nationalize everything. Like, <laughs> Ra Ra Rachel Maddow was like, what are nationalize you for? The... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, people really? People are dying, sir. <laughs> really? This is how we're going to do it? I mean, I get... I, honestly, I like the use of sir, like uh, <laughs> like Keith Olbermann used to do. You sir, when he used to call President Bush sir. The, 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 the obnoxious sir is my favorite. President, President Bush is being redeemed this week. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because of, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, speech. also, the, the other one is Peter Navarro is like, I see him being slagged off all the time. And I also see like, well, he was like actually warning because he hates China so much <laughs> in, uh, in January. Yeah, and I actually mentioned memos. a lot. Yeah, and I, exactly. And I actually mentioned uh, a couple of episodes ago that um, this story that I read about these um, swabs that were needed for for testing, and a very particular type, and they're being made in Italy. And he sent like a military plane over there to to bring them back. And it was all of uh, Navarro's. Navarro was doing all of this. So mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting who will come out of this. 
um, you know, looking okay when there's so many people that are coming out of this looking bad. By the way, also um, to the point of like test, 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 and all these people that I was mentioning are applying um, for emergency approval from mm-hmm. the FDA. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fauci also said they're just the ordinary tests. I don't know if I mentioned this, but just the regular, you know, COVID-19 tests. We will be swimming in them in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I, I can't remember. Yeah, I heard that. And, be- and, and I've just said something almost favorable about the president. I should say that that in terms of the most profound failures of the administration in response to all of this, even if you weren't deeply concerned about this in January, there isn't a great excuse or explanation for why the administration didn't act faster to ensure that we were building out testing capacity because it was Mm -hmm. obvious that this was something that we needed to be keeping track of. Um, And that is a minimally invasive thing to do. And a lot of what they did eventually in terms of deregulating to allow for like private outfits to start doing these tests as opposed to the CDC having this uh, vice grip monopoly on testing, um, it, it just took far too long. And we're still recovering from that. And it's still the case that the sort of randomized sampling that we ought to be doing in populations in order to have some idea whether or not most New Yorkers perhaps have been exposed to this um, the same way that it, that's happened in like a place like Iceland. I mean, I, I think that is a profound mistake. And that mistake has almost certainly, as a consequence of not being able to inform policy, it's cost lives. And it certainly meant that we're employing policy remedies here not knowing whether or not we're making good decisions. Um, and it's possible that we could have been a better, in a better position had the president um, responded uh, better at the time. And that certainly seems like something that another administration might have gotten right. Um, and I don't think the fact that he canceled flights to China or in from China uh, was particularly valuable, um, especially since that uh, embargo on China travel didn't seem to work particularly well. It, it didn't, did it? What, what was that all about? There was like... 85,000 people that came through <laughs> from China after that. I'm like, how do these embargoes Man, still work? Do. But I think, I think it's worth, uh, it's worth separating the basic two, uh, categories of the Trump administration's response because there are lessons to learn about Trump if you hate his guts, but also about the bureaucracy if you love its guts. Right. Mm. The, <laughs> the CDC's problem, the FDA. I've, I've never heard someone flip the hate its guts to love its guts. <laughs> but like the, the testing roadblock was not Trumpian. The yeah. biggest single error from the administration is about the testing. Camille, you're absolutely right about that. That is what leads to the draconian stay at home orders and all this stuff that's just going to kill the economy for at least a quarter and it's going to damage it. Uh, uh, Scott Gottlieb was out on, yeah. on, yeah, I yeah, know, but it kills it for a quarter. Scott Gottlieb was saying it's like, it's going to be an 80% economy by the end of the year. And that's 80%. That's a bad number. Like 100% is a, is a good number. I'd be shocked by that. Yeah. I would be shocked too. So, but that, uh, was a bureaucratic question that has nothing really to do with Trump. What Trump did that's bad, and he does it badly on a daily basis, despite his occasional breakthroughs that Camille uh, detailed, is that um, uh, part of the guidelines of how you're supposed to act best in public communications during an epidemic is just get out front of the actual knowledge and tell the truth all the time. And let people know what's going on. Um, maybe it's going to be rough for them to hear. Um, 
you don't want to excite them, but you don't want to lose their trust. Don't say crap. Uh, don't like make false promises about what you're going to be able to do a week from now. Um, just level with people on a certain uh, basic level. Trump can't do that constitutionally. And he's and he's I mean, in his own personal constitution. <laughs> yes. Yes, um, I understand. Uh, I, <laughs> listeners. Um, but uh, uh, also <laughs> um, like like he he went way beyond that in some of the idiotic things that he has says. And on a daily basis, just like running off his mouth, he also does. He's done a terrible job with that. But the fundamental error is not him. That fundamental error is of the bureaucracy that he oversees for sure and is ultimately responsible. Yes. But it's also the pathways of that bureaucracy, the habits of that bureaucracy, the bottlenecking that it does, the the jealous guarding of its own prerogatives and testing privileges and all this kind of crap. Um, you should be, if you are someone who's like, you know, we, the deep state needs to have a chance. We have to listen to the experts and the scientists. If you're that guy or that gal, you should be looking at how the CDC and the FDA fucked this up because they did in a way that killed people or led to people dying and Probably. certainly killed the economy. And that's bad. It should cause you to think twice. So everyone has things to think about in this crisis. There are two places that I'm interested in going um, in the in the time we have remaining here, to the extent we have any. Um, maybe you guys will decide that you don't want to. Uh, I'm interested eh. in... <laughs> I'm interested... I have low blood sugar. It's late. My <laughs> well, drink is empty. To, I don't want you to die. Mm. Um, I'm interested <laughs> in two things, and maybe we'll come back to them on another day because... They'll both be around. Uh, one is some some of the broader like foreign policy stuff that yeah, our like, two actually communal <laughs> broader foreign policy <laughs> that actually matters here and and what your own appraisal of the situation is. If we're not going to dive into the specifics, but it struck me that I probably in my lifetime can't think of a time when I was more gravely concerned about the likelihood of really awful drawn out international conflict um and and i think it's because of the political instability that exists in china and iran and various other places where the united states is not particularly loved um but also the fact that we're simply not paying attention and it's not as though the us presence abroad isn't still active. Like there have been military engagements in places like Somalia and the conflicts that Saudi Arabia has been involved in, that the United States has been essentially helping to support them in. Those are still ongoing. Uh, and I don't, I don't think people are sufficiently aware of just how vulnerable a spot China is in uh, as a result of all of this and just how much their circumstance is likely to degrade because even while they're trying to get back to work, I think some of the stuff that's happened recently with them delivering a thousand or a hundred thousand units of completely broken personal protective equipment probably has more to do with the fact that their economy simply isn't functioning than anything else. And if that leads to a circumstance where there's like a battle with Taiwan or something, like this, this turns into like a really ugly situation very quickly. I wonder if you if you all have made sort of similar appraisals of things or if you think it's just way too early to tell. I think the 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 most salient point and Moynihan is smarter than I so he'll have a better thing to say is just of uh of the China point, right? Um 
China, which is uh, red uh, China, red <laughs> Wuhan, China, <laughs> communist China. Uh, uh, I, I think people don't understand, and I don't certainly understand, uh, the extent to which their economy, even prior to this, had been uh, tanking and going south after more than a decade of pretty hysterical growth and what that does to things um, in this kind of weird semi-superpower competition state. So it's hard to wrap our brains around it. And um, yeah, I, I, I think we haven't thought about it. I'm less worried about the immediate moment, like that someone's going to take advantage of the distracted um, you know, world and do something rash, uh, but more that the world has gone into a weird populist phase, um, much more autarkist, much more kind of mercantilist. And these things tend to lead to less peace and more weird competitions and conflicts. Um, and that worries me uh, in the broader terms. And I think the coronavirus accelerates all of that, exacerbates it. People uh, on the left and on the right worldwide are going to be taking advantage of this to seize and, and aggrandize more power. This is not going to lead to more peace. Um, but I'm not I'm less perhaps immediately worried than you are, Camille, about like people going to blow each other up next week. Uh, yeah, I think it's too early to say. Um, and the one short point is just that I worry the same the same thing of that the accumulation of power um, uh, in the hands of uh, bad guys and people who are half bad guys tend to become worse guys when when power accumulates in their in their uh, in their office. So yeah, that's I mean, we'll see. I think that's the only thing we can. It's, it'd be kind of a fool's errand to predict anything at, yeah. at this point. So yeah. And, and again, um, it's just for me, it's, it's concern and not any sort of certainty. I mean, that whatever debates we were having in the country about immigration and about globalization and <laughs> about the need for insourcing uh, and uh, all those things, I, in a way, those conversations seem very old. And it seems like those of us who were on the side of of making certain that there is a great deal of interconnectedness and open borders uh that conversation is probably not one we're going to be able to have for some time well i think it i think it might solidify that wing of of um well i mean it's the current state of the republican party that whether or not donald trump wins re-election i think that it, you're going to have an easier time after this making a case for um insourcing you know remember we all we had all our pp in china see what uh, tucker's talking about all the time this is mm -hmm. his, he's banging on about this and borders too is that you know um, closing borders to to these infected people that come in and uh, and make us all stay home for for months at a time. I mean, it's a crazy and stupid argument, but I can mm -hmm. see it it being one gaining some currency. Yeah. All right. Anything else before we get out of here? You got idiots um, who've written things. We we spent some time talking about them already. I oh, so much. But somebody, a couple of people mentioned um, in the Patreon uh, comments. We should address this now that uh, they want to know the details of um, the Zoom thing that we will be doing tomorrow at 8.30 p.m. Um, the details, we don't even know. Yeah, exactly. Right. We'll be stay on tuned. Zoom and we'll be, we'll be on Zoom. Stay yeah. tuned. We'll be posting about it. We'll be figuring this stuff out. Everybody's figuring it out as they go. But two months ago, I'd be like, you said, like, do it on Zoom. I'd be like, what, what the hell? Is that like a club? <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll be figuring that out. And uh, the other thing is that Camille asked on Twitter, um, your favorite moments uh, from uh, We the Fifth, uh, from the Fifth Column, because we're it's with a purpose. We're actually it, it's for a reason. We're asking, and there's been some really great suggestions. And when you make these great suggestions, uh, it's uh, good that we have dedicated uh, fans like Andrew Wimsat who then finds them and then post clips them, <laughs> including me of one of me telling some guy to go fuck himself, uh, who was a guest on the show. <laughs> apparently. Um, I, I vaguely remember that from a very rough period, uh, for me. So, um, so yeah, that's it. So just, uh, uh, stay tuned on that. And, and, uh, in the next, uh, I mean, obviously less than 24 hours, the next 12 hours, we'll, we'll have something for you. Yep. Yeah. Matt, any, uh, anything before we get out of here? No, nah, I'm good. We'll see y'all tomorrow. Oh, I just posted an embarrassing photo. of. Yeah, I know. Of asshole. You do look like Vince Lombardi. By the way, what? Someone, someone's already. It looks like you have a gap in your tooth because of the way that the shadow is. Someone's already like, uh, like it looks like uh, uh, there's been no shortage of food in the uh, Welch house. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, man. No, it's just that's. You know what? I will say this in defense of Matt Welch. I would usually (laughs) take the opportunity to to shit on anybody and laugh at them, but uh, it is just a very bad angle, which is exactly why I chose it. So. All, All right. right. Shout, shouts out! Shouts out to the good people of Paris who are no longer allowed to work out during the day because nonsense. <laughs> Bye. 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 We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.